Matthew 18. Last week, last week I started a sermon very, very simply. I said, it requires two things of a pastor to preach. One is to really know the Word of God well, and number two is to know the audience well. And I was talking to a friend about this, who's also a preacher, and he said, I agree with the first part, but I'm not too sure about the second part, because truthfully, when I come up to preach, in some ways, it's not as much about the people in the audience, it's really still about me. I need the Scriptures. I need it probably more than anybody. And I made me stop and think, and he's right, actually. A preacher... A preacher's job is first to be a disciple, um, because we haven't arrived either. I was thinking about it, in a sense, what a preacher's job is, I have, I'm just a beggar who found bread, and my job is to show you how to get to it, because we're all beggars. And as I contemplated my need, I opened up to Matthew 18. So if you open up to Matthew 18, I was going to do 11 verses, but I couldn't get past four. So really, we're only going to look at four. And the title of the message today is, Are You a Child of God? Matthew 18, 1 through 4. And the second part I have on the bulletin, if you're a child of God, then why aren't you acting like it? So let's read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's it. That's all we're going to look at. And that's all I really could get past as I studied this passage. This begins in verse 1 of chapter 18 with something that plagued the disciples the whole time they were following Jesus. And it dealt with this singular question. Who is the greatest? Who's the greatest? By that question, they were really asking this. Which disciple deserves the top billing? Who does Jesus like the most? Who wins? So we we have to ask what caused them to ask this, because they asked it a number of times. In this specific situation, a couple chapters before, Jesus was asking, who am I? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Peter, I'm going to name you the rock, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. So in some sense, here's Peter. He just got incredible compliment by Jesus, so he must have felt a little bit better than the rest. Special privilege. Last week we talked about Peter, James, and John going up to the mountain with Jesus and he got transfigured before them. Probably on this side of heaven the greatest vision anybody has ever seen. People like to boast about visions. I saw the sun shake or some people say I saw a ghost in the corner of my, you know, my dead grandfather. Some people say I prayed to Jesus and an eagle flew in the sky boasting about their visions. Hey, nobody saw Jesus transfigured like Peter, James, and John. So you can imagine when they came down off the mountain, they said, fellas, you wouldn't believe it. What we got to see, and James probably said, dude, it was incredible. If only you were there, but too bad, only we got to see it. So that might have been one of the reasons. 
There's another passage later on in Matthew and also in Mark and Luke where James and John's mom hold Jesus aside. And he said, hey, Jesus, uh, can my, one of my sons sit at your left hand and one of my sons sit at your right hand when you take over the throne of heaven? I bet you that caused a little bit of conflict. But I want to show you one other time. Go to the book of Luke, chapter 22. Luke 22. And looking in verses 15 to 24. And I want you to just check out the context of this. It's actually appalling to me. Luke 22, verse 15. And if your Bible's like mine... Right before verse 14, it talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is the instructions Jesus gave the disciples in the upper room the night he was going to be betrayed. And he breaks the bread and drinks the wine with them, starting in verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before and then he says, I suffer. That means before I die. Verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to them saying, this bread that he just broke, this is my body which is given for you. So the idea is that this bread represents how I'm going to be broken for you. We've probably heard this a hundred times, but think about what he's saying because wait till you see what the disciples do. Verse 20, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So I'm going to pour out my blood for you too. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table, for the Son of Man goes at, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now watch what the disciples do. So Jesus just said, I mean, you think about it, he just said, hey guys, I'm going to die for you, okay? I'm going to lay down my life for you. So they start questioning themselves in verse 23. Which of them it could be who's going to do this in verse 22? And then all of a sudden, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. How could the disciples be so absorbed? Jesus just said, I'm going to die for you. And they say, which one of us is the best? That's disgusting. But then I stopped, and I paused, and I thought about myself. If I am to honestly examine my own heart, the desire to be the greatest, I think, is one of my biggest problems in life. By far. I want to be recognized as somebody important. I... I want to be seen as greater than other people, especially in my job. I want to be known as one of the best preachers in the area. It's in me. I don't know how to explain it to you, but I'm competitive. And I hate how competitive I am. It's sick. I want respect. I want to win. I want others to see me as an important person. So I could say, 
The same vileness that plagued the disciples plagued me too. I ask this all the time. Who's the greatest? And if I was a betting man, I would take all my money, go to Vegas, and place an all or nothing bet on the hunch that I think this plagues you too. We need to take some time to examine this stain in us. So we're going to approach this verse in two ways. Number one, we need to see why wanting to be the greatest is so wrong. So we need to expose the stain because you must first see the stain in order to remove the stain. And it's going to take a while to get there because I'm not sure we see it as vividly as we should. I think we don't see pride hides us from ourselves. And then once we see it, the second part, we're going to quickly talk about the cure. What is the cure for the stain? Because if we don't clean the stain, Jesus warns us about something in Matthew 18.3. Look at Matthew 18.3. If we don't find a cure for this problem, Jesus says in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn, that means unless you get converted, unless you change your life and become like children, you will, and look at the next word, never. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So is Jesus bluffing here? We're good at saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is, every, we have to take every word of Jesus seriously. It's easy to say that when we're sitting in church. But something happens to us once we leave these four walls and go home go to our place of work, be with our friends. Something takes over us where we want to be the best again. We want to be right. We want to control other people's lives. We want to be the experts. How do I know that? Because I know me. I know me. So let's begin with movement one of the sermon. Why is wanting to be so the greatest so wrong? And I'll just say it as simply as possible. When we want to be the greatest, and when we tell other people we're the best, we are bearing false witness. We're lying. We're lying. The reason I say it's a lie is because believing we are the greatest means we're taking credit for something which was not earned by us. It was earned by someone else. And it's found in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Look at this verse. I'm going to have us look at a couple verses and then meditate on these verses. Like, let them soak in. Acts 17, 28. In him, it's a conditional phrase, which means our existence resides in God, the Father. So in him, we live, we move, and we have our being. So you could say it like this. Let's take the word live. Without him, without him, we can't breathe. Our heart will not beat. Our mind will not think. Take the word move. Without him, we don't move our arms or legs or fingers or toes. We can't even do this. Without him, we can't accomplish tasks. We can't get out of our beds without him. Without him, we can't dream. We can't draw. We can't go on a diet. We can't type on a keyboard telling the world how great we are. We can't take selfies without him. We don't put on our makeup without him. We don't drive a car without him. We don't curl or color our hair without him. We don't pluck our eyebrows without him. 
We don't go to the mall and look at clothes on a hanger and say, isn't this cute without them? We don't get piercings and nose rings and plugs. We don't get tattoos with skeletons without him. We don't even shave our head and look tough without him. We're, without him, we're like Matt. You know who Matt is? He's the guy sitting by the door without arms and legs. Bad joke, I know. Without him, without him we don't have being. We don't exist. We were created ex nihilo. What that means is out of nothing God spoke. Out of nothing we were created by God when he spoke. We didn't have pre-existence before God gave us existence. In fact, Psalm 139 says, Every day of my life has been recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out bare before one single day came to be. In other words, before I entered this world, my whole life was already pre-written. That's what it says in Psalm 139. John 15 says, without him you can do nothing. So if this is true, if this is true, why do we compete for top honors as if we deserve them? 1 Corinthians says, why do we think we deserve everything if it wasn't us who did it in the first place? Why do we imagine ourselves better than others if it was God who first made us and then moved us? And then we have to go to the second passage. And this deals with our standing before God. This is Romans chapter 5, 6 through 10. It says, when we were still powerless, this is us before Christ came to us. We were powerless. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies. So we were not only powerless, we were ungodly. Ungodly means we don't want righteousness. Sinners mean we, we willfully trespass before Christ came into our life. And enemies means we really don't want God in our life. So you could say it like this, our, at our starting point, in no uncertain terms, our whole salvation, our standing with God, our goodness, our confidence to exist without fearing immediate removal and condemnation are 100% dependent on God's mercy. God's mercy. There is absolute no reason God should look on me with favor by anything I have done. He saved me when I was ungodly, a sinner, and an enemy. And if you would have known me before I was 23, you would say there is no reason God would love that guy. None. So not only do we not deserve anything, but we need to realize we start from a position of brokenness and rebellion. The reason we are not pulverized is because God is holding himself back. God is not... It's funny, because I really think some people in this world think God is scared of them because they can grow a beard long or put on a barbed wire tattoo around their bicep or wear a flannel shirt. Like I'm intimidating to God because I can bench 250 pounds. Really? God can bench the planet Jupiter with his pinky. Like there's this, we just don't see God rightly because we have pride coursing through our blood and this pride blinds us to our Inability. I call this the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a psychological truth, truism. Psychologists have studied this thing. 
and they call it the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'll explain it to you in a second, but here's what the Dunning-Kruger effect teaches. It teaches this, that the less you know, the less you know about a subject, a skill, or an ability, the better you think you are at that subject or skill or ability. And those who are incompetent and uninformed in a given area tend to be ignorant of their incompetence. And they believe that they know more than they actually do. The reverse is true too. The more you know about the subject, a subject, and the more competent you are at something, the more you begin to realize how little you actually know. It's our pride. It blinds us to our own ignorance. I'll give you an example, perfect example. And I don't mind embarrassing myself because this is really true. When I grew up, one of my heroes was John J. Rambo. I love John Rambo. First blood. Somebody said, you look like him, you know. So I grow my hair a little long and I put those things on my head and tie it. Do you guys know who John Rambo is? Okay, John Rambo is the amazing Vietnam guerrilla warrior. Dropped him off. He could take on 100 Viet Cong by himself. And I watched two of the movies, so I thought, man, if they dropped me off in Vietnam, I would cause some serious damage. <laughs> I became the youth pastor here. We went on a paintball tournament up in Lake Ann, and I brought 20 teens with me up to Lake Ann. I wore fatigues and black army boots like John J. Rambo. And we were playing capture the flag up at Lake Ann paintball. And it's where you run through the woods and you try to capture the team's flag, bring it back before you get shot. So we line up. 20 guys on my side, 20 on the other, and I'm like, I'm going to tear through these woods, thick pines, thick oaks. I'm hopping behind shrubs and trees, and I am way ahead of my team, and I'm on this front, this behind this big tree, and I see the flag on the other side, and I'm like, all I got to do is sprint 50 yards, and I got it. I take one move around this tree, and I'm in a clearing, and there's six guys that have been watching me the whole time. And they have their guns on me. And they, what's called in paintball terms, light me up with paintball. <laughs> I get about 100 on my face, in the back of my head, on my chest, on my legs. And I'm thinking, Chris, if this was real, you would be dead 100 times over. You'd be like bloody Swiss cheese. I'm like, what? A... <laughs> I was so dumb. I thought I was John Rambo. And I didn't even know what I was doing. I was, <laughs> I was an idiot. Because I imagined myself to be so much greater than I really was. And when it comes to faith, the less people really know about God, how man was created, what true holiness and goodness really are, the more righteous they think they are. Let me say that again. The less people really know about God, the more righteous they think they are. Did you know when Job actually got to see God face to face? There are three really godly men that got to see God face to face. Job, Isaiah, John the Apostle. Every time they saw God face to face, each of them fell flat on their face and they said, woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. You could say this too. The less someone knows about God's work in the world, the more they take credit for it. We give science a lot of credit for things that God already hardwired into the human body. The less someone knows about the perfection of Christ, the more they think they can compare themselves with Christ. Do you know how perfect Jesus was? And you think you can compare to him? It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. 
Greatness is a byproduct of ignorance. The less you know, the more pride you have. The more you know, the more humble you become. You know what we call this in what I would call popular vernacular is narcissism. A lot of people use that term a lot now. That person is a narcissist. All you're basically saying is that person, number one, has a strong sense of entitlement, like they deserve things when they really don't. A narcissist is somebody who wants to control all situations and they think they have the right to control everybody else's behavior. A narcissist is somebody who needs admiration and recognition. I need to be significant. I need you to see how important I am. And a narcissist lacks empathy because they're so self-obsessed. You know who were narcissists in the New Testament? The Pharisees. Jesus calls them out in Matthew 23. Listen to what he says. It says, the teachers of the law and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they're not even willing to lift a finger to help them out. Everything they do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long because they love the place of honor at banquets. They love the most important seats in a synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect and have them people call them rabbi. What Jesus is saying is don't be like that. And if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you can't be like that. You can't. Stop trying to be the greatest. Stop competing. So then what's the cure for this? Because it's hard to get rid of. What is the cure for greatness? Verse 2. Listen to verse 2. In calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus brings out a child before them, the disciples and the people of that time do not view children the way we do. I want to kind of get rid of this. A lot of people say, oh, because children are sweet and nice and innocent and so kind. Have you ever had kids? <laughs> That's not the reason Jesus is saying. That's, it's not because children are pure and adorable. The example is about status. They did not entertain some idealized version of children where we always dress up our girls in princess outfits and our guys in superhero costumes because they're just wonderful. That's not the point. In fact, we live in the most unique time in history. We, live in a, we have so much money, we are so bored, so we're always looking for something to entertain us. We live in fantasy. They lived in what I would call a third world country where they just had to survive. In Jesus' day, children were raised with the expectation that soon they would grow up to be contributing members of the family. They did not allow their children to live in a state of perpetual adolescence as our society does. I mean, seriously, could you imagine? Jesus and the 12 disciples, all day long, it's a Saturday, all day long, they're healing people from leprosy and other diseases, and then after they're done, 
Peter comes up to Jesus and said, Lord, we're going to Comic-Con tomorrow. What are you dressing up like? Thor, I'm going to be Thor, Peter. What are you going to do? I might be a fairy princess. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Like, we're, we, we, have, we, are, we live in such a fantasy world. They gave their lives so people could survive. Life is different back then. And so the point I'm trying to make is that when he's talking about children, he's not talking about this sugary sweetness. He's talking about children had no rights, really no privileges, and in their society, no status. He's talking to these men that want to sit one on his right, one on his left, and he says, you really want to you really rule? And he takes a grubby little kid and stands him up in front, and he goes, you've got to be like him. And they probably are like, What? Children's opinion during that day didn't really matter. They spoke when spoken to. They had to learn from adults. And when they were mistreated or not necessarily honored, they weren't expected to be, feel insulted. Other thing about children is rules and commands by the adults and leaders were to be accepted. They respected people put in positions of authority. And children were not to demand or expect special honor and adoration. No rights. No privilege, no status. That's the point. Growing up, I grew up in a big family. I was the youngest of six kids. Four older sisters. and My sisters would always complain that I was spoiled. I was mom's favorite and I was spoiled. And I'd, I'd say, that's not true. I'll, I'll give you an example. When I was about six or seven, and we, we were going to school, in May and June... The sun, the sun stayed out longer. Daylight savings switched back. And in May and June, the sun didn't go down about 9, 9.30. My curfew was always 8 o'clock on a school night. I can remember going to bed at 8 o'clock, and the sun is still out. My brothers and sisters who were older than me got to go to bed at 10. We're outside playing games, shooting baskets, running with the dog. And I'd sit in my bed going, this isn't fair. I don't get to go out when my brothers and sisters do it. I remember I'd try to sneak down. And my dad would catch me and goes, what are you doing? Go to bed. It's a school night. Go to bed. But I want to. It's not fair. He goes, I don't care. Go to bed. And as a kid, I'd go back up and I'd go to bed. But I started learning. That's the way it is. I'm not the most important person in the world. That's the point. Look at verse 4. Whoever humbles himself. Like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is the key. It's all about humility. This is what Jesus is trying to teach them. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, you are not the most important person in the house. Children understand this, and if we are to follow Christ, we need to learn this too. He uses this word in verse 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, turn means this is a natural thing for us. We have to change our mind and change our hearts and change our behavior. We use the word converted for this word, but it means repent, be different, stop trying to be the greatest. That's the point. So you could say this, true disciples have to stop and learn become the least. Do you remember, um, it was about a year ago, we were doing the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Matthew. 
The Beatitudes are a list of things, list of blessings that talk about how I become a kingdom person. And the very first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit. The very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poorness of spirit is the person who recognizes their need, that before God, concerning their ability and significant, they are destitute. In myself, I have nothing. I am needy. Like we sang, Lord, I need thee. I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Humility comes from the idea that we are born dust and ash, and dust and ash I will return. It's an acknowledgement of my standing before God. You could say it like this. That's the point of being a child. And if you really are a child, Jesus said, don't you think it's time to start acting like it? Sir. So today is, in the Christian calendar, considered Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is that day that precedes the Passion Week. The week when Jesus methodically goes to the cross. Next Friday is Good Friday where we remember Jesus' death. Next Sunday is Easter, we remember Jesus' resurrection. But on Palm Sunday, this is the day when people would raise up palms and go, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a time of rejoicing because here comes Jesus as the king. But wait a minute, did he come riding in on a white stallion or a humble donkey? He came humbly. He came to die. And that's the point. Philippians says, treat other people better than yourself. And then it says, in the same way, Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, hang on to. But he made himself nothing. What this is saying, you want to be a child, quit grasping for status, title, recognition, People to think you're the greatest. Let go. And treat other people better than yourself. That's the point. Last week, last Sunday, there was a great cultural event that happened. That ever happened in our country. It was the slap that was heard across the world. If you know popular culture, last Sunday at the Academy Awards, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock straight across the face. There was all kind of, oh no, this is the Academy Awards. This is around the greatest people that live, celebrities, Hollywood stars, the perfect people. What's funny about this is it reminded me back a couple years ago, there's another award ceremony called the Golden Globes, and the Golden Globes is a... Step down for the Academy Awards, but all the same people are there. All of the heroes of our, you know, our cinema. But at this one time, they had Ricky Gervais as the host. Ricky Gervais is a comedian, and he rips on all of the stars. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He basically says, all right, everybody, we're going to have a great time at your expense. You know, and they just, they don't like that because they're seen as wonderful. Well, after Ricky Gervais just ripped on Hollywood and criticized him and really embarrassed him, somebody wrote an article called Why Ricky Gervais' Criticism of Hollywood is So Satisfying. And I want you to listen closely. He said the reason why 
the criticism of the Hollywood elite is so satisfying is because their sole claim to fame is that they play pretend. They don't cure diseases, but they pretend they do. They don't save puppies from burning buildings, but they pretend they do. They don't save the world from cataclysmic natural disasters, but they pretend they do. So when the average person sees a famous actor who played a superhero in his or her last role, they respond in a manner that is akin to actually seeing and meeting the superhero who saved the world. This adoration bestowed on celebrities coupled with the wealth that they accrue turns them into our society's royalty or royal class. They are the greatest. That is why for some celebrities, it is difficult not to succumb to a sense of narcissistic grandiosity. I'm a wealthy actor who is worshipped by millions of fans. Surely my uninformed opinion on issues that I know next to nothing about is profound. Hey, members of the peasant class, let me lecture you in patronizing and condescending ways about why you are immoral. I will guide you about whom to vote for, what to eat, and how to navigate through daily life, because I play pretend on a screen. That's exactly right. Why was it fun to rip on the Hollywood celebrities? Because they believe their own lies about themselves. They play pretend. They put on an outfit, they get behind a camera, and they think they're really that person. And they're not. But you could say it like this. Children know they're playing pretend. Narcissists don't. So when you start thinking you're the greatest, you're playing pretend. Stop it. 